they went to Capernaum. And when Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit, impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching? And with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Will you pray with me? God, we, we started our service this morning saying, open the eyes of our heart. And we know that's figurative speech. Our hearts don't literally have eyes on them, and, and our hearts aren't necessarily that, that part of our anatomy that takes in information and digests it. We understand, Lord, that we bring all of who we are to you, and in doing so, you bring all of who you are to us. And the ledger is heavily weighted on your side. It's hard for us to take it all in. So by your Holy Spirit, open our minds, our hearts, our lives, that we would take in this day what you would teach us through your holy word. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, my undergraduate college experience was just up the road a piece in Ellensburg. I went to school at Central Washington, and I didn't expect to be there. I thought I was going to be studying at Whitworth and uh, doing pre-seminary study, and then going on from there to, to seminary and, and launch my, my calling in, in that path. But through a twist of events, I ended up at Central Washington University, which was my father's alma mater, um, and was happy to be there if for no other reason I was there on scholarship and I didn't have to pay tuition. So, bonus. If you can get that, go, go wherever you need to go, young people, if they're going to pay your way. So, uh, I, I was there for a number of years and... I still knew that I was feeling called to the ministry, but you have to pick a degree. You know, they kind of encourage that sort of thing at college. And so I decided that um, if I was going to be involved with the church, I did have certain spiritual giftings and teaching, and what better way to hone that gift than to get a degree in education. And I like to read and I like to write, so English education with a religious studies minor. And uh, religious studies at a, at a secular school like Central Washington is quite a bit different than you would be uh, learning it at, at Bible college or at a seminary. Uh, but that also made for some really fun conversations and interactions with those I was taking those courses with. My junior year, uh, just into the School of Education, you had this opportunity to do fall experience, is what they called it. I don't know if they do something similar still. It's been 25 years since I've done that now. But fall experience where you were encouraged to find a teacher that would be willing to have you just kind of sit in 
and watch, their, watch them do their thing with their class. Uh, in September, before classes started, late September, usually around the 25th or 26th at Central. So I went back to my alma mater, uh, Governor John R. Rogers High School in Puyallup, Washington, and to one of my favorite teachers, John Taylor. He taught my, my AP English class uh, my senior year, and I, I wanted to sit his, at his feet and kind of soak in as much as I could, possibly. Now, he had been teaching for a long time at that point. I think he only taught for about five or six years more after this fall experience, to the point where he was way beyond needing to write you know, lesson plans and things like that. He just kind of showed up, and he did his thing, and it was fantastic, which, in retrospect, probably wasn't the, the best way for me to engage in a fall experience, because you're, you're not really picking up on some of the skills that are going to make you a good beginning teacher or help you out later in student teaching. And I remember he, you know, he said, Hoy, why don't you take a class or two? I'm like, okay. Um, but I was young. <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're a junior in college, you think you're old and mature, but you're, you're not. You're just a baby, right? You don't get it. You don't get how much you don't know at that point um, because you've, you've been soaking it all in at college. So you, you think you know it all, right? And so I tried to teach, but I tried to teach in a way that was very, I was very clearly mimicking my mentor. And it, it worked okay. But I can remember him pulling me aside at the end of the day and saying, Chris, you got to be, you have to teach like you teach. Don't try to teach like I teach. I, I, it, that was the kindest way for him poss possibly to have said, when you've been doing this for 30, 35 years, maybe you can do it the way I do it. You're not ready for that. And the only reason that these wonderful young teenagers were listening to me in the first place is that when I was in that classroom and I was in that fall experience, I was under his authority. And so I was borrowing his authority to have any sort of classroom management. Now it helps, and this is one of the reasons why I chose to have him be my mentor teacher for this fall experience is that he did have the honors classes which your students tend to be a little bit better behaved. They also tend to be like I was in those honors classes, a little more precocious and ready to fire back at the teacher if they get something wrong or misstate something. So there were a few of those moments, but the only way that I survived that experience was through borrowed authority. I didn't really have any on my own. Likewise, a uh, year and a half later when I was doing my student teaching, I was fortunate enough uh, both my, my fiance, soon to be bride after we graduated, we were both lucky enough to have our student teaching experience in Kittitas, Kittitas High School, so just outside. So we didn't have to move. Uh, we both had our separate apartments and we, we drove out. She had math classes in the high school. I had English classes in the high school and middle school. And three days into my student teaching experience, uh, Scott Olson, who was my uh, master teacher in the high school, he had uh, diabetes and he cut his foot pretty bad in a motorcycle incident. 
and it got infected and he had to be hospitalized. And so my mentor teacher in that setting, after day three, was poof, he was gone. Now, at any other school, maybe this would have been an issue and they might have moved me to a different classroom, but it was, it was kittitas and they were like, well, I, and I had been volunteering in his classroom kind of hoping to pave the way for me to get this great assignment so that I didn't have to move and be in another location for my student teaching. So they felt like I knew enough of what I was doing and had enough rapport with the teachers that they could just, or with the students that they could just let me go. I look back on that <laughs> and I think, if I had been in that position, I don't know if I would have made that same decision. It went all right, but again, any classroom management I had at that point was because of borrowed authority. The kids knew the situation with Scott. They loved him, he was one of those beloved teachers. He rode a motorcycle to school. I mean, how cool is that when you're in high school that your, your English teacher rides a motorbike? And so I think I, I benefited from the love that they had for Mr. Olson and that I was at least somewhat adequate in my abilities to, to maintain a classroom. And they kind of put up with me and I muddled through. So again, borrowed authority. And we can, we can get by with that quite a bit. Um, if we have an employer and we represent that employer uh, and we have an issue with a customer or, or a client, we're not only representing ourselves personally, we're representing that company or that group of people that we're a part of. And so there's some authority that comes with that. And authority can mean the power or the right to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. Right? It can mean that. But in most cases, I think authority is rightly understood as this interplay between power and legitimacy. So power is the ability to, you know, to make you do what I want you to do. It can be conferred from on high, but legitimacy is earned. Power can come with a title, like pastor, position, you know, being, being the captain of a team, perhaps, something like that, or by force, by just being bigger and stronger and meaner than anybody else in a group. That can give you power. Sometimes it can be a display of skill, expertise, or like I mentioned, strength. But legitimacy, that seems to me to be more relational. It's based on a display of wisdom, of restraint often, of power, or just kind of a quiet confidence. Sometimes we get that sense from somebody else that they, they know what they're doing. They're the, the real deal and that gives them a sense of legitimacy. And when someone possesses both qualities, legitimacy and power, they have a sense of authority that can be felt. And I think that's what the people in this synagogue in Capernaum picked up on in Jesus. So first we're gonna look at legitimacy. If you see in your bulletin, there should be, um, there should be that Venn diagram, all right, that, that overlaps the two. You could use that to take notes, um, your own thoughts as we're going through this, or something I might mention that, that rings true with you. But today, legitimacy, I want to start there. It's earned through an expression of compassion 
and competence. Legitimacy is, it's that characteristic that instills trust in other people. And the first two readings that we had today deal with legitimacy. They deal with legitimacy, and, and I'll explain. In Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 20, that was our first reading from the Old Testament, God reminds the people that at Horeb, that's another name for Mount Sinai, that's the, you know, if you've seen the Ten Commandments, that's the mountain of God, all right? Storm and the cloud and the lightning and, you know, Charlton Heston goes up and gets the, um, gets the Ten Commandments. And he reminds the people at that time through, through Moses, because this is Moses speaking in Deuteronomy, that they said, enough of your power, Lord. We can't, we can't stand it. It's too much. The fire and the storm, the, and the, by the way, the judgment for idolatry, because while Moses was up getting the Ten Commandments, they were down, you know, forging a golden calf and, and celebrating around it, and, and God didn't look too kindly upon that. And they said at that time, enough, enough. You know, we don't, we, we don't want this, this sort of interaction with you relationally to the Lord. Instead, give us your voice through someone else. And Moses, Moses, he's a good, well, we choose Moses, right? Like it was their choice in the first place. But that was, that was the way they approached it. God's just kind of reminding them, you know, in saying, hey, you remember, you remember Mount Horeb, right? Okay, I'm going to do it that way you're going to get a go-between. You're going to get a filter. And as harsh as Moses' rebukes were at times, if you read through Exodus, he's, he does not describe the people of God in too kindly of terms uh, in his prayers with the Lord. We, we understand that even in those moments, he was tempering the power and the wrath of God. He was advocating for the people. You know, we have these prayers and Moses is praying to God and kind of saying, hey, God, you know, yeah, you, you have a perfect right to wipe them, off, complete, wipe them out completely. Just sweep them off the map. But if you do, what will the other nations say? Right? Which is kind of a funny, it's a funny interchange between Moses and God if you, if you think about it in that way. What will the other nations say if you display your righteous wrath and anger upon these people for, you know, practicing idolatry while you're giving them the gift of the law up on the mountain. So Moses is the go-between. He's, he's filtering. And, and we get that promise of uh, there will be one like Moses to come, right? which is an allusion to, to Jesus and the authority with which he's going to speak on God's behalf to his people. And then we get the New Testament passage, the, the 1 Corinthians passage, and this is a passage that I've, I've heard mangled in all sorts of ways uh, over the years in terms of application, meat sacrifice. I, I mean, the reason it gets mangled in application is that we, d we don't really have a situation like that nowadays where the meat that we consume is being sacrificed to Zeus or Apollo or uh, Diana or something before we consume it. So, so we don't, it's hard to draw the correlation one-to-one -one from that passage. The meat that was available in the market was invariably coming from some sort of ritual worship experience where it was sacrificed to any number of pagan gods. And um, we know from Scripture that there are demonic forces behind idol worship. 
it's pretty hard to read through scripture and not recognize that at, at some level. Now that doesn't mean that everybody that worships an idol is worshiping a demon, but they're participating in a system that's meant to cloud people's understanding to the truth and draw them away from God. So in that sense, they are participating in a system that is demonic, all right? That's as much as I'm gonna get into the demonic thing. Like I said, we're not gonna go the exorcism path this way, because frankly, we don't have enough time to get into that in the, in the Mark passage. But this question in, in 1 Corinthians and the pastoral advice that Paul is giving, and he's sort of interjecting himself into their dilemma, is it's this question of participation or affiliation. How does, uh, so in our terms, it would be how does the church or members of the church justify being part of a system that appears to be at odds with God's purposes? And Paul's spirit-guided direction to the church was to, to say, understand God's sovereignty. That's a, that's a great place to start. If you're, if you're making an argument, you say, God is in control. If you start there, chances are you'll, whatever, whatever conclusion you draw from that point is going to be better off than if you started a different place. So understand God's sovereignty. The idols in themselves really are nothing. Right? They're chunks of wood. They're pieces of metal. But to those newly a part of the faith, freshly stepping out of that system of idolatry in their past lives, this knowledge, all right, this, this affirmation that really this is just a piece of wood or this is just a chunk of metal, wasn't enough to keep them from violating their conscience. So more mature Christians, Paul counseled, should not wield their knowledge and experience in a way that offended their weaker brothers and sisters. This was a compassionate response to doing life together as Christ followers, living in a world system that is at odds with God's kingdom. Now, do we see those, those factors of competence and compassion building, trust that leads to legitimacy at play in our experience? I, I think we absolutely do. The, des the world desperately needs Christians who are competent people, trustworthy, uh, able to apply God's word in an, in an understanding way, to hold the, uh, to borrow a phrase from Hebrews, to hold the word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, to, to wield it as a scalpel and not a meat cleaver. Not compromising the truth, but tempering some of that Mount Horeb fire and brimstone with compassion and understanding. So that, that kind of covers the, the interaction with the world, but we, we also live in a Christian subculture, right? We all know how well Christians get along with one another, right? <clears throat> so we face the challenge of living within a Christian subculture where varying degrees of knowledge might pit us against one another. It may not be a situation as obvious as meat sacrificed to idols, all right? We, I would hope that all Christians, like if we were actually put in that situation, could say probably like, eh, we, there are other ways we could get our hamburgers here or our pork chops or whatever. But the temptation is there to make judgments against our Christian brothers and sisters for points of emphasis 
that they make in their walk with Jesus that are not an issue for us. Let me put it this way. If my passionate advocacy for children's mental health issues within the church or the rights of the unborn or the need for racial reconciliation or a compassionate response to immigration policy or certain beliefs around the proper ordering or practices of policies of the church, if any of these points of emphasis that I feel a certain conviction about in my walk with God drive a wedge between me and my brother and sister in Christ, what is God's counsel? What is the compassionate, caring, faith-filled response? Now, Paul said, if what I eat causes my fellow Christian to fall into sin, may I never eat meat again. That would be hard for me. <laughs> that would be hard for me. I, I like, my favorite meal is a, is a prime rib, you know, and a potato and some... Maybe some, uh, some horseradish. Absolutely, you got to have the horseradish and some, maybe some grilled vegetables. Asparagus, yes, that's a good one. Brussels sprouts, if done right. Um, Paul said, if what I eat causes my fellow Christian to fall into sin, may I never eat meat again. He tempers his rights and knowledge in order to make room for the needs another had to obey their convictions at that time. When we competently apply the word of God first to ourselves and we seek to compassionately engage the larger church and world around us, the goal is not to have others conform to our understanding or conviction. It's not, or else Paul would have given different advice. I can stand for what I believe in without having to pull the rug out from under you. And we don't always get that sense from our fellow brothers and sisters, do we? And God willing, this approach allows us to remain in relationship and build trust over time with those we may not see eye to eye with. Relational investment then is what leads to legitimacy. If Paul had given them this advice without also having been in the trenches of ministry with them, I think they would have said, you know what, that's really nice, Paul, but it sounds like you're compromising. We're going to hold the line. No meat, sacrifice to idols. And it would have split the church. Relational investment. That's what gives us legitimacy. It's part of why I'm, I am trying to take the time as your pastor to get to know you before before telling you what to do or what, whatever the temptation might be, right? Because I know from my experience when somebody tries to tell me what to do before they know me, it doesn't feel very good. Even if the idea is good, it doesn't feel how it should. Legitimacy is that sense that someone is the real deal and we can feel it. Nobody has to, if I have to tell you I'm a legitimate authority, Authentic, trustworthy. So that's a key component in establishing authority, our topic for today. But legitimacy is just part of the picture. Jesus spoke, taught, and ministered as one who had authority because he displayed power. 
power is displayed in being able to accomplish a task and a, an ability to succeed, especially where others have failed. It instills confidence. What is the example of power in this passage today? What is it? This is not a rhetorical question. You can actually respond. What's the, what's the display of power? Casting out the demon, that's right. Boom, flashy, it happens. But Jesus is, Jesus is very rarely, especially in his early ministry, when he does something that is kind of what we would expect to be a display of power, you know, fireworks, something big, something flashy, healing somebody, casting out a demon. What does he say? What does he say almost invariably? we're like, wait a second. That's not the way the world operates. The way the world tends to operate is if you got power, you let people know. Because it not only takes care of whatever situation you've just displayed your power in, but it sort of intimidates everybody else, too. But that's not the type of power that Jesus is displaying, this power that intimidates. So we've got, we've got something else going on here. The implication in this story is that Jesus was able to do something, was able to accomplish something that the religious leaders of the day were not able to. Bring relief to this demon-oppressed member of their fellowship. Now, we can get hung up on the, on the how, right? The, the, the verbal speaking of the demon and Jesus speaking verbally back to the demon and the demon leaving the individual. We can get hung up on the how, but what is it that Jesus does for this person? He helps him. He helps him. Know anybody else that can help other people? Right? So, don't read scripture and get hung up on the demon possession part of it and think, I can't do that, or I don't see that at operation in the world today. Whereas, you know, if you were to go to some other cultures, you might actually see that in operation today. Um, focus more on what's going on underneath it, that Jesus is helping this individual. Similarly, this isn't in my notes, but this is just hitting my heart. I've been a part of a lot of church fellowships over the years. And the saddest thing that I see in church fellowships are people that come every week to worship struggling with something that they don't, they don't have the, the trust and the legitimacy is not built within the fellowship where they can share what's really going on. And I wonder if this situation for this individual in this synagogue they were probably aware this guy had this issue, right? I'm guessing it wasn't to this extent. If the demonic spirit had spoken out in every synagogue gathering, they probably would have not invited him back. But there was an area of oppression or an area of, of uh, sin or lack or relational disconnect with the rest of the fellowship. But that person kept showing up. Kudos to that individual. We, have, we probably have people in this room. We certainly can think back on other experiences knowing people that kept showing up. They kept being part of the fellowship, seeking something, but they didn't end up ultimately getting it. 
and they left. Now, sometimes that, you know, this isn't about blame. Sometimes it can be on us. Sometimes it can be on them. Sometimes it can be on a combination of factors. But we should be encouraged when we see Jesus helping this individual. We should be encouraged in our hearts to think, when I show up, yes, it's about, I, I come to the fellowship because there's something I receive from it. But if I'm not also giving, if I'm not also seeking those individuals that need that connection, that need the authenticity of relationship that builds trust and legitimacy that, that the community of faith knows what they're talking about when they say, come be part of us. This kingdom of God is something different than what you're going to experience out there. If they don't get that, then we're not legitimately, legitimately being the people of God. That's something for us to consider as we move forward. Back to my notes. All right, that was a little aside. But I feel, I, I feel passionately about that. Because if we're going to grow, if we're, gonna, if we're going to, if we're going to be the people God is calling us to be, we have to have that as a consideration. Now, when the church is able to succeed where other organizations fail, when we persist when others fold, when we stand by others when everyone else fails, that's a demonstration of God's power. That's it. And you may not think that that's particularly powerful, but think back to your own experience. It's the people that stick by us. It's the people that keep caring. It's, um, it's when the fellowship does what the fellowship is supposed to do that God's power is displayed. Now, would it be cool on occasion for God to work a miracle right in our midst in the middle of worship? Sure. But that's not, that's not God's real power, the legitimate power of the people of God. It's, it's in the relational connection that we experience here. We can't compete with the world's power necessarily in becoming more skilled or more knowledgeable or more powerful in worldly systems, in the way that the world defines power. I'm afraid if we attempt to compete in that arena, we're going to be woefully overmatched. But if we connect with the limitless power of God's presence and the Holy Spirit, it seems quite clear to me that, that anything the Lord purposes for us will come to pass, despite the odds against us. 